Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs. Good news, everyone. Austerity is over, so we've swapped our usual subterranean panic room for a gold-plated studio on top of the shard. The champagne, <laughs> sorry, the British fizz, is flowing and it's totally Kanye up in here. All paid for with sackfuls of the new Brexit 50p coin. I'm Andrew Harrison and I have some of our regulars here to jiggle delightfully as they flick canapes into one another's mouths from across the room. Alexandro, actor, singer, political commentator and the best thing to come out of Greece since the Antikythera mechanism, the very first computer ever invented. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I de- love being the setup for a joke that fewer than four <laughs> listeners will get. Absolutely, yes. The Antikythera mechanism dates back to 87 BC, but Alex does not date back to 87 BC. Hello, Alex. Welcome Nearly back to the though. show. <laughs> it feels like that. How are you going to spend your Brexit 50p? Uh, I will be buying a third of a euro. A third of a euro, okay, fair enough. Um, we, uh, one thing that we, we should just touch on quickly before we move on is this is this is Farewell Merkel week. Angela Merkel will be stepping down as Chancellor of, of, uh, of, of, of Germany. Do we, do we think this she is will going, be? Yes, do we think gracefully? Is, yes, do we think this is actually going to have an effect on Brexit? It's no. going to have a huge effect on everything, I think. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I don't think it will have a specific effect on Brexit, but mm. there's, Obviously it's the, it's there's the quite ch- a political vacuum in Europe forming right mm-hmm. now. I mean, Sweden is unable to form a government. Uh, you know, Macron hasn't turned out to be all that, although he may yet hit his stride. There's a lot of uh, far right um, rising up in in the former Eastern Bloc and add Brexit to that. Um, I think it's going to create a real power vacuum um, in the sense that I think we're fast approaching territory where there's no one actually to rein in the commission. Right. In a, in a very strange way, because, you know, actually the UK and France and Germany occasionally when the commission pushed too hard with their sort of technocratic uh, attitude towards things, they they told them to hold their horses. And I think we're fast approaching a situation where there's actually no one to say that. Mm. The last grown up, last grown up in Europe. Um, you can hear him muttering in the background there. Also with us, Ian Dunt, editor of Politics. <laughs> it was very good evaluations. I it was indeed. <laughs> Ian, how are you going to spend your Brexit fifty p? On, on comics, on a quarter of a comic, a quarter of a comic, <laughs> yeah. an eighth of a comic. There was a suggestion that people like us. Romaniacs, when we get these Brexit 50Ps, we should donate them to Best for Britain or maybe to a charity for migrants. What do you think about that? Do you think it's a... I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, well, you know, that, that, that doesn't sound like it does any harm. I mean, it doesn't, it's not going to get over the fact that it's a really irritating stunt for them to be pulling. Nothing's going to take that if, away. If anyone wants to donate them directly to a migrant charity case, I have PayPal. I'm just, put, <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. Well, we like to give a, a safe haven to migrants on the show. Um, uh, Ian, what do you think about, uh, about Merkel leaving? Is it the, the last grown up in Europe vanishing? Yes. I mean, I don't think it has any effect on, on Brexit. And there was, you know, for for years I mean even you know David Cameron would think that Merkel was the solution to his European problems just get the Germans on side and it's like oh no no I mean they, they generally think pretty similarly to us within the EU doesn't mean that they're going to step in and start saving you ultimately the single market matters more to them the EU matters more to them what it does matter for exactly like Alex put it it's, it's the end of the grown ups and she does you know I'm, I'm very critical of of really her economic policies I'm critical of several other respects that she's operated she's well to the right of anything I'm comfortable with but she is a grown-up that understands the severity of the historical moment that we're in and behaves as if complex problems exist and cannot just be rounded down into a slogan. Um, and for that, I, have, like, I feel a bit of a shiver whenever it, you know, whenever it becomes clearer to me that she's not going to be around. 
Mummy's going away. Basically, Mummy's yeah, going yeah. away. We've got a very special guest on this week. Uh, Gavin Esler is a legend of television journalism, BBC Washington correspondent during the Clinton years, Newsnight presenter for a decade, Sony Gold Radio Award winner for his documentary Letters from Guantanamo, and the author of several novels and non-fiction books. He is so progressive that he's a massive fan of prog rock. Tall, crimson, <laughs> Floyd, live at Pompeii, very Euro. So this is going to be a special triple-length edition. Wait till you hear the drum solo With that a, I'm going to play. Absolutely. Absolutely, with a gatefold sleeve. Um, since leaving the BBC to concentrate on writing in 2017, he's been ever more vocal on Brexit, writing extensively against it and appearing at Remain events like the People's Vote Rally in Edinburgh. When once I quietly accepted a democratic vote to make Brexit happen, he wrote in the New European, I don't anymore. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming down. Very good to be here. What occasion this change of heart? Um, what occasion this change of heart was, uh, I realised two things. The first is that Brexit isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of obviously, I thought, give it a chance, let all these very competent, intelligent people like Liam Fox and, you know, the (laughs) hardworking David Davis and the, uh, you know, Stakhanovite... uh, 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 Boris Johnson, <laughs> let them get on with it because they're they're the geniuses that can make the impossible work. Well, they couldn't, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're faced now with a choice of uh, uh, Theresa May's fifty-seven varieties of Brexit, none of which anybody seems to understand, or no deal, or no Brexit. And I decided that of those, no Brexit was possibly the best idea, or at least to have a people's vote on whatever the mishmash that we're going to have. And behind that, there's something much, much bigger, actually, much bigger than Brexit itself, which is that we've been lied to for a couple of years. And if we let the people who lie and deceive us win, Mm. then we're entering Trump land. And we can see what's happening uh, in Donald Trump's America, where... I spent almost two years of my life on one lie, which was I did not have sex with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> Seems such, such innocent times. It, exactly. <laughs> and that two years, one lie. Uh, every day we get so many lies from the President of the United States that we can't keep up with them, we can't keep correcting them. And I fear, unfortunately, that if we buy into this Brexit deceit, we will be... Uh, having a country in which that kind of activity is tolerated, and it's intolerable to me. Mm. As a BBC, recovering BBC escapee, do you feel that that the kind of BBC's model of balance created an environment where that kind of untruth is not exposed, but is treated as just the other side of the argument? Well, I think uh, I got into journalism believing that there were three things that were important, to be accurate, to be fair, and to be balanced. But I never believed that the definition of balance was if you've got somebody who really knows about something and somebody who doesn't know anything but is quite glib and can can uh, expatiate on it on television that that's balance that's not balance and it seems to me that uh, the media which tried to be balanced on climate change by having Nigel Lawson talking about climate change mm-hmm. when he really had no expertise, he'd read a few books and he had opinions, but he had no expertise, was making a terrible mistake. We don't balance somebody who's interested in child protection with having a paedophile. Uh, it's just, just n- nonsensical. So mm. on matters of fact and on matters of morality... The idea of balance doesn't work. It does if you have Labour with the Conservatives or in Northern Ireland, where I used to work, you have Republicans and Loyalists. That is balance. That's fine. But you cannot balance fact with nonsense. And that we've seen that throughout the Brexit debate. And I don't think any of the the media which uh, attempt to have that balance to see, let's have a lot of different voices, has really covered themselves with glory. As a BBC insider, were were there 
you know, was this a hot topic? We should not be presenting uh, fake balance as true balance. Well, uh, as, as you've probably seen, the BBC has now taken the view that you do not have to have a climate change denier on when you've got the UN climate change panel repeatedly telling us climate change is happening. Uh, what I don't want is in five or ten years' time for there to be another inquiry into balance, phony balance on Brexit. Uh, and th- the bit that really annoys me, possibly more than anything else, is that there are a number of quite glib-sounding or nice-sounding think tanks, supposed think tanks, which are essentially fronts for the same kind of point of view within our society. And they're given a lot of airtime. They're not people who are elected. They're not people with any particular expertise. And I can, you know, a good good example is the so-called Taxpayers Alliance. Well, my voting form got lost in the post. I'm a taxpayer. My voting form to elect the representatives. (laughs) Did yours get, did yours turn up, Gavin? Did you get a vote? I'm afraid I've failed to get into that. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. It is extraordinary. So, I mean, that that to me is a there's a lot of these there's there's a what is it called now the ins, it was going to be called the institute for free trade but it's now called the initiative for free trade yes because they're not allowed to be called an institute they they're not an institute <laughs> and perhaps the, the, the institute of ideas i think is now called the academy the, i think the academy of ideas because the institute has a particular yes. meaning but these the, the, these groups we could we could set it up uh, set up our own group uh, as a as a pressure group we don't know who funds them how seriously should we take them? And I think, unfortunately, if you're appearing on ITV, BBC, Channel 4, you've got a sort of imprimatur because the, the viewer will think, oh, that person from this think tank that I've never heard of must be some way important. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on television. Mm. One of those think tanks is more like a drink tank. It's a kind of social uh, event for, for Brexiteers, and they get on television quite a lot. So I find that really annoying. Well, uh, Gavin is going to be with us on the Institute of Romaniacs throughout the show, helping us uh, <laughs> to deal with another quiet... For balance. Yes, can for balance. I, can yes. I just say that I think uh, God left fossils like... Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg behind to test our faith. <laughs> test our faith, yes. It, that evolution doesn't actually happen. Um, in the show, we're going to be looking at the uh, the economic outlook for the whole of Europe. Look, continues to look uncertain as no deal looms. Russia has just blackboard Liam Fox's WTO plans. What does that all mean? The head of the Electoral Commission resigns with the Leave campaign investigation still unresolved. The Brexit press were very keen to portray Claire Bassett as living under a cloud of anti-Brexit bias. Well, again, what does it really mean? And is the far right as big as we think it is? A new survey suggests that that extremist right-wingers make up only 6% of the US electorate. So why are they making the running around the world? Plus, as we attempt to keep it light, the authors of the grown-up Ladybird books, Jason Hazley and John Morris, who also created those fantastic People's March banners for us, will be dropping in to talk about their new Ladybird story of Brexit. We've got ten copies to give away in an actual competition, just like Multicolor wow. Swap Shop. So we've never gonna, had a competition before. We've got competition is good. It's gonna we're gonna have loads of competition when we're out in the world, into the world. Competition. Get used to it, Ian. Get used to it. So we're gonna get into all that after this from Alex. We are delighted to announce another Romaniacs Live, the last one of 2018 at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Monday the 10th of December. Nothing says Christmas cheer like a lengthy and detailed discussion of the European acquis communautaire. <laughs> so our regulars, Dorian Linsky, Ingrid Oliver, Rose Taylor, plus, of course, Ian Dunt, will be gracing the West End with a live version of the podcast while the mulled wine flows. There will be deep Brexit analysis, shallow Brexit jokes, audience questions, and perhaps Ian will be persuaded to sing food adequate food from the musical (laughs) Broliver. 
Tickets are now on sale at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and they are going fast. Of course, our Patreon backers got early bird access to a pre-sale and a discount on tickets. You can get that discount too, plus Romaniac's merchandise and every edition of the podcast a whole day early if you pledge a small amount each month to support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just search Patreon Romaniacs for more information or just go to the Romaniacs Facebook page. That's Romaniacs Live on Monday the 10th of December. Tickets at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and search Patreon Romaniacs to find out how to back us in the battle against Brexit. Thanks, Alex. Now, hold tight for this week's Brexit news round. First up, the economy, stupid. Chancellor Philip Hammond tried to announce the end of austerity in this week's budget, but the economic outlook remains blurry as any Brexit deal remains uncertain. The Office of Budget Responsibility revised growth for 2019 and 2020 upwards a little, but they're still fairly weak figures at 1.6% and 1.4%. Meanwhile, industry continues to worry. Heathrow has just raised £1.6 billion in contingency money in case of no deal. And the Institute for Public Policy Research says that the North West and the Midlands will be hit hardest by the new immigration system bar most low-skilled EU migrants from settling in Britain. And as I mentioned earlier, Liam Fox's cunning plan that we could easily slip into WTO rules was scuppered when a fast-track application was vetoed by Russia, of all people. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? Ian, taking these in reverse, how significant is Britain being blackballed from a fast-track WTO application? Yeah, I mean, it matters. It's not just Russia. There's a few others. Mm. Most of them are allies of places like um, New Zealand and America, countries that really rely on their agricultural exports. We knew this was going to happen. Um, well, I mean, Liam Fox didn't, but everybody else did. Um, so this is to do with the, with the uh, tariff rate quotas. Tariff rate quotas are incredibly complicated. The, the problem generally is you can usually take a tariff rate and just copy it over. So if the EU had 12% on bananas. We're going to take 12%. We'll just do that for now. We'll figure out our shit later on once all this hell storm has passed us. Mm. With tariff rate quotas, uh, it's, it's a greater problem because they're quantitative. So you need to set, basically the way these things operate is to say, let's say this many hundred thousand tons of mutton comes over to Europe above 200,000, let's say, uh, we will then you would then have a tariff. But below that, there's no tariff. So that means that you have to start figuring out how much of the mutton that comes over to Europe goes to the UK, how much stays in the rest of the EU, and then also how much of it goes from the EU to the UK and vice versa, if you're leaving the single market. That's very, very complicated. I mean, the EU hasn't managed to update its from when I think there was 15 members, because it's such an incredibly difficult technical thing to go through. However, that also gives you the indication of where the out is, which is that this is not a cliff edge problem, as it is with the rest of the things that we face with the EU. You can put down your schedules he's based it on the last three years of trade that's very sloppy by the way with a lot of products the trade goes up and down so it's, it's not very effective but that's what they've gone for there was, there was no better option I don't think to be fair to them and then you can trade on that basis while you go through the legal fight that will ensue mm. now that that litigation will follow those complaints will follow and they'll beat it around nothing involves a cliff edge the danger is I think twofold it's bandwidth and relationships and in terms of bandwidth we're pretty fucking busy right now. And now having to go into separate rounds of litigation with several of our trading partners is not what we want to be doing. Secondly, it's reputation with them, your relationships. These are the guys that we want trade deals with later. Now, if you start buggering up these trading talks now, because you either haven't got a new, you haven't dotted your I's and crossed your T's, or if they start feeling that you're not being fair to them in some way, then that makes those future trading relationships much more difficult than they were in the first place. So it's not a cliff edge problem, 
but it is just another horrible issue to chuck on top of the absolute mountain of issues that we are currently facing. <laughs> yeah, a mountain of horrible issues. Gavin Esler, there was talk of a, 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 a astonishingly talk of a Brexit dividend in the budget, even though every indicator is that Brexit is going to weaken the economy across the board. Can we take anything from that? I mean, it, was a, it, was a, it seems to be what? a spending budget at a time when there's nothing to spend. I think the Brexit dividend was, if we get a deal, it won't be absolutely as catastrophic as if we don't. <laughs> I think that is exactly... I think that the right. dividend is exactly. sort of like, you know, we can save your left leg. Unfortunately, we've had to amputate your head. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, some, it's something, something like that. I, I'm just struck this week that we are this really is the Alice in Wonderland moment you know it's jam tomorrow and it was jam yesterday but there's never actually jam today and for all the reasons that Ian, Ian said about one specific issue it is so complicated the people who are supposedly in charge of it don't really know what they're doing and therefore the idea to believe that that, that we should believe that there's a Brexit dividend of any kind is just clearly nonsensical I can't believe anybody's going to fall for that and yet it turned up in headlines um, the the clincher obviously we've talked about this frequently on the show was the was the promise of more money to the NHS um, in, in the <laughs> referendum and this I know is a I love that old joke yes uh, I know and I know this is a uh, this has been a major thing for you this because you've been you've been chatting with our old friend Daniel Hannan well D- Daniel Daniel Hannan uh, MEP Conservative MP uh, Brexiteer uh, has at least been honest enough to say one of the things that he would like is American healthcare companies to take over British hospitals. Hmm. Now, I spent a long time in the United States. I know a couple of things about this. One is American healthcare outcomes for the ridiculous amount they spend, almost twice the proportion of GDP that we spend, are worse than ours. And they're not just worse than ours. Perinatal mortality, death around the time of birth for kids in the United States is worse than in Cuba. And the reason I know this is it's on the CIA World Facts website, if you look at perinatal mortality yeah. in Cuba. CIA, you, right. So it's the CIA, so yeah. they wouldn't lie to you, obviously. Deep state. Deep state. <laughs> deep, so it's, it's the deep yeah. state. But the, the, in fact, the, their health outcomes in the United States for such a rich country are shocking. And mm. the second thing I know is that the biggest cause of bankruptcies in the United States is healthcare. Mm. And uh, so if you get cancer, it's a terrible disease anywhere. If you get cancer and then have to worry about how can I pay for my treatment without losing my house and my family's home? That's another thing. We just simply don't want it here. And, but the idea that somebody two years into Brexit might float the idea, as Daniel Hannan has, of American healthcare companies playing a big role in Britain. That is absolutely astonishing because not very many people would vote for that, I would suggest. It's a Big step to try and read the mind of Daniel Hannan. It's a funny thing. It's a, it seems to be a very Heath Robinson operation inside that, that, that head. Why do you think he is so keen on this? Is it, is it simply a, a, a devotion to the notion of private competition across the board? Or is there something more going on? Well, I, I suspect it is, is possibly that. I mean, I, there's clearly money in healthcare. American healthcare companies make a vast amount of money out of it. They would, and, and the bigger picture here is that any post-Brexit trade deal done with the United States will have a lot of American companies lobbying their senators and their mem- the members of Congress, members of the House of Representatives, to get precisely this kind of access. Mm. So it's not just we're going to have to have chlorinated chicken mm. and uh, the hormones in the beef and the other uh, animal health issues, which I feel quite strongly about. But the, the, the idea that you can get a very quick trade deal with the United States when 
every member of Congress will hear from people in their district or their state that they need to do something for my business, which happens to be healthcare, say. Mm. That will cause us great problems if Brexit actually happens. It's a good business model, though, isn't it? Because if you make them sick with chlorinated chicken and hormones and then they have to go to your (laughs) hospital, it's quite sort of (laughs) self-sustaining. Yeah. I'm going to disagree for a moment because I think it will be a very quick deal, especially if we drop out with no deal. I think we'll just say yes to everything. Ah, you think? Mm-hmm. But Yeah, because I don't think there's another choice. The, the idea of Brexit was always predicated on hugging the states very closely, I think. And they just didn't factor in that Trump was going to come in and make the states this incredibly aggressive entity in terms of trade. The only thing I would say, I think from our point of view, yeah. you may be right in terms of desperation. From the American point of view, the idea of doing anything quickly in the United States in Washington doesn't really work. True, mm. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moving on, I mentioned the resignation of the head of the Electoral Commission. Claire Bassett will leave at the end of the year, even though there's been no action on the Commission's recommendations for legislation to clarify who pays for online campaign ads, tighten the rules on political donors and raise the maximum fine that the Commission can levy for infractions. The Brexit press trumpeted this as a victory and Aaron Banks has called the Commission a Blairite swamp creation. Alex... <laughs> <laughs> is this a victory for vote leave? Have they driven an enemy from the playing field, do you think? Um, I don't know, to be honest. I thought she was pretty terrible at the the Electoral <laughs> Commission. And so, uh, you know, I think she's leaving because she did things very badly. I mean, when when it emerged during the court case that they, they um, fought up to the Court of Appeal that... The, the Electoral Commission had actually advised them it was okay mm-hmm. to siphon this money off to believe, even though the court found it was still unlawful and they still ought to have known that it was unlawful. Um, I think that that's what sealed her fate. Plus, she's going on to be the chairman, I think, of the Trade Remedies Association? The Trade Remedies Authority. Authority. It's going to protect British industry from unfair trading practices after we leave the EU. Well, good luck to us all. We're sending a bloody Ramona to defend British industry (laughs) (laughs) after we've left the EU. We do do really need a body like that. I mean, you have to have it in order just to be able to fight off, especially the Chinese with steel at the WTO. And so it would be nice to have someone competent there, but I'm with Alex, and I thought she was catastrophic, well, and I thought her I, predecessor was catastrophic as well. Yeah. It's, Although it also has to be said that it's a bit of a poison chalice because you have this this uh, body that's meant to safeguard this incredibly important thing um, th- that, to which incredibly stringent rules applies, but it has absolutely no teeth yeah. to do it. Mm. And so... Arguably, anyone would have failed in that brief, just not so uh, comedically. There is a trend, there is, if you sort of talk to Joe Mohan, um, who obviously the, the Good Law Project basically pushed the commission into investigating this stuff at mm. all. I mean, the commission were refusing to do it over and over until the Good Law Project launched a judicial review against them. And it was only on the last day that they had to, to launch a formal response that they actually bothered to try and investigate it properly and then came back with the more damning findings. He has an assessment of them where he thinks that they're pretty similar to most regulators. And I find his argument quite convincing, which is basically said the guys that take over these regulators tend to be people who've been promoted on the basis that they don't really rock the boat very much. And by government, you could say it's, it's when, when people from outside often look at this thing and talk about an elite conspiracy and all that, often what it is is 
the kind of people that are promoted are not promoted because of their competence, not promoted because of their intelligence. They're usually promoted because they're the kind of people that are not going to fuck things up for the government very much indeed. Yeah. And so that's, those are the people that you get there. And, and I think the problem may be more severe just than the, the Electoral Commission, although I do think it needs quite significant reforms, especially, as you're saying, to, to give it some teeth, at least. She herself was admitting that it was basically just an operating cost, the kind of fines that they were going to impose. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but, they said but there's something too. broader they with all the regulators. Kind of mm-hmm. yeah. price it in. Well, just, yeah. just, to, just to clarify that, the listeners may, may not be on top of the story, the Commission could only fine vote leave a pretty derisory £61,000, which they themselves, as you say, described as a cost of doing business, and the Commission itself did. And uh, they were able to fine uh, the uh, Darren Grimes, the Harry Potter of leave, or whatever he is, uh, £20,000. So these are not no, significant sums. I mean, because to, to link it back to the thing we were talking about before, if you're a huge American healthcare company that funded the Brexit campaign through various intermediaries to the tune of a million, do you give a fuck if mm. you have to pay another 61 grand to get access to this market? Mm-hmm. Of course not. It's small change. It's, it's, it's down the back of the sofa. What should happen to the Electoral Commission? Should we put you in charge of it again? <laughs> I don't want to have anything with the responsibility. I'd rather keep the I'd love to see you and give evidence to a committee. <laughs> I, would, I would sit in for that committee. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, could, what, you, you could you refrain from swearing, Mr. Dunn? <laughs> no, what, no, I, I mean, cannot. Is um, it impossible to run an electoral commission when everything is so politicised now that the first line of attack is is, uh, is you are biased and you're a swamp creation? Well, you need people that are able to stand up to that sort of thing. I mean, we, we were talking about the, the, the BBC earlier. And we can have our concerns about the BBC. One of the things that I feel we're happier about is the fact that the BBC seems to be standing up for itself more over the last two years, admittedly on an issue where I actually happen to think it's getting it wrong <laughs> than it was doing in the, in the 10 years before when I thought that it was being unfairly attacked. And you need institutions that are prepared to stand up for themselves, that are prepared to say, when these challenges come in, don't question my integrity, I can show you the work here, this is how we do it. But that involves two things, right? The confidence to do it, but also being on the front foot about what you're doing. Now, there was a broad legal consensus at the time around... When we're talking about donation, do we mean working with or do we mean control? Are we, if, if you were to say to another group within your coalition of groups, we're going to do this on the Wednesday, you do stuff therefore on the Tuesday, that would be okay with the donations. If you're saying we've both got 40 grand, let's do it on this campaign, that would not be okay. Now, there was some confusion there as to exactly what those rules meant. The Electoral Commission needed to make that clear at the time. They quite demonstrably did not, by virtue of the fact they were giving advice which went the other way and which Will Straw on the Remain side said if they'd given me that advice, I would have spent more money, which, by the way, arguably could have won the thing given the margin of error. On that basis, they're not getting it right during the campaign. They're not getting it right investigating it afterwards. And they're not doing enough to consolidate their reputation when all of the Aaron Banks start attacks come afterwards. You've got to fix all of those areas yeah. in one go. So that's another thing to put on the big pile so of there was only, <laughs> So there was, there was only one thing for it, a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> Finally on the news front. (laughs) Listeners, are you one of the exhausted majority? God knows I feel like one. It's been a monumentally depressing week out in the world. Eleven elderly Jewish people were murdered in cold blood in in a Pittsburgh synagogue, the worst anti-Semitic atrocity in American history. The pipe bomb attacks on critics of Donald Trump seem to have been been squarely inspired by radicalising extreme right-wing social media. And Brazil returned the hard-right president Jair Bolsonaro, a blunt populist who is nostalgic for the country's military dictatorship, openly homophobic and racist, and an advocate of torture. Everywhere you look, it seems the extreme right is on 
the march. And yet, researchers looking into the political divide in America found that only 6% of people fitted the definition of far right as against 8% on the progressive activist far left. By far the largest of the hidden tribes of America that they discovered was the 67% who fell into what they called the exhausted majority, a group that looks for common ground, has opinions based on evidence, not ideology, and hates polarisation. Alex, I know this is about America, not Europe, but do you think this is transferable? Do we have an exhausted majority here, or is it just me that's exhausted? Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty exhausted. Um, <laughs> did you? I don't know if you saw the the item that was uh, in the news this week, the report that came that um, far right uh, terrorism is now up to forty percent of all terrorist incidents in in Europe. Mm with uh, sort of um, extremist Islamist terrorism being only above that at sort of roughly 43%. I found that quite startling. And I think think actually uh, intelligence services are running to catch up with this. I think it's caught them a little bit with their pants down. There was someone on the BBC explaining how many years it takes to cultivate mm. contacts and you know within uh, uh, groups so that you know what they're up to and i think they're they're really behind the curve on this and and uh, i think the stuff we're seeing in america is is an indication because these are you know we're not stopping the same percentage of attempted attacks that we are the other way. We really have no uh, sort of intelligence into those communities to be able to do something about it. It's always, oh, well, he was a model employee until the day he mm. killed... And yet we would imagine that, I mean, in the, the very sort of almost banal level of analysis, is it, it's kind of should theoretically be easier for a primarily white middle-aged organisation to infiltrate far-right terrorism than Islamist terrorism, where cultivating links in in those communities is much more difficult. And frankly, you haven't got the staff because you haven't been recruiting from that area. Gavin, you're gesticulating. But there's a a couple of points here. I'm not surprised at the figures. I don't think there are that many lunatics who are prepared to do this kind Mm -hmm. of thing. However, I do think there are a lot of enablers, uh, including um, the the verbal incendiarist who's actually in the White House, uh, who stirs things up, who who creates an atmosphere where these kind of things are possible. And I think there's one other bigger point about the exhausted majority or whatever you call them. It seems to me that both Brexit and Trump were the wrong answers to the right question. And the right question was, why do I not feel at home in my society or my country or anymore? And other political parties and the rest of us have got got a duty to answer that question in a different way, which doesn't mean voting for somebody like Trump and doesn't mean Brexit and doesn't mean lying to people. And so I think the exhausted majority are partly exhausted because they're not getting that answer and they've become de-aligned, mm. is in the, the phrase from the traditional parties. And the fact that Donald Trump is not a Republican, he's mm. Donald Trump, who happens to have the Republican badge because that's his flag of convenience. And, uh, and so I think those of us who would like to reinvigorate our democracies have got a responsibility to try to explain <clears throat> why we get the anger, we get why you voted the way that you did, but we don't think that solution is right because it's actually not going to make things better for you. We've seen the Conservative parties in both the United States and Britain uh, almost hand over the keys to the extremist end of their own their own support and their own party. Um, 
Could there ever have been a moment where someone stood up and said, actually, this is not what our party's about? I mean, we saw countless times the Republicans, you know, someone would hold up their hand and they would they would crumble very quickly. Is this a failure of leadership in those parties? It's, uh, I, I think it's slightly different on the other side of the Atlantic. I think in, for Republicans, and I, I, I know a, a few, I'm quite friendly with uh, somebody who works for, for a Republican senator, in fact, who I've known for years, and they're frightened about people on their own right because many of them... In the campaign, uh, which we're going to see uh, for the midterm, uh, midterm elections, we kind of forget in this country that people often face a challenger within their own party a few months ago. And so the Tea Party movement and the successors to the Tea Party movement, who are the kind of Trumpists, are the people that... Uh, the, the, the normal Republicans or the traditional Republicans most feared. I mean, we have got a president who's engaged in a trade war, who's not in, in favour of free trade, it would appear, whereas the Republican Party has always been in favour of that. But he has delivered one big thing, which is lower taxes. Now, it may benefit the rich more than the poor and so on, but that is old-time Republican religion, and it may be enough for a lot of them to keep their seats, and that's what they care yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Stuff their mouth with gold. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, Alex, Greek desk. Um, obviously, Golden Dawn came out of a political and economic trauma, but they pre-existed the financial crisis, didn't they? There was a. There's always they been a strain. Pre-existed it in various iterations because I think that's what effectively that's what the far, the far right and the far left are very very different creatures. In that the far left, I think, its way of propagating is um, mitosis. It sort of splinters into tiny groups which disagree on ideological things and uh, consider themselves purer than the other uh, thing. I think the far right progresses with mutation. It's sort of this amorphous mass that is constantly changing its name, its leader, its marketing campaign, its logo, in order to try and find one that taps in to something people are feeling. It, it, it just tries to find a crack in the system, the right point at the right time. Um, and then it kind of blooms into, into this sort of uh, 60s B-feature sci-fi blob um, <laughs> that consumes everything around it. And I think we're near that point because, yes, 6% is smaller than you'd think, but 6% is still a hell of a lot. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> to, to set the tone of a society, you know, I mean, that means six people in every hundred you meet. That is a lot, hmm. you know, a lot of snowflakes because the far right are, of course, the ultimate snowflakes. They're bro flakes. <laughs> They're Can bro I do flakes. a little something from the Latin American desk? So I'm, yeah. I'm half Guatemala. Looking at what was going on in Brazil this week, it was a quite weird moment because he's in the sort of archetype of the kind of right-wing militarist fascists that we've seen in Latin America throughout. You certainly saw in Guatemala, you know, with Rios Montt, who massacred the Mayans when, when I was a child. Um, and that really goes all the way through Guatemala history. You obviously see the same thing with Pinochet in Chilean history. Same thing. In, in most, most countries in Latin America have had it at some stage. What was fascinating this time to see him come in, uh, you know, Brazil is, is usually quite different, usually a much more sophisticated country than, than, than uh, those other examples. And um, 
was actually that he was comparable to guys that we had over here all of a sudden. Suddenly you get this militaristic yeah. right winger. Yeah. And the first thing they went is, oh, it's their Trump. And you think, oh, fucking Christ. Like, if this is the point where this is comparable to people like Rios Montt or to Pinochet, and he is directly comparable to those people, then something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And it's noticeable in that respect that whenever, we've, whenever you want to use that word fascist about someone like, let's say, Viktor Orban, um, who I think you know, satisfies the term in any, yeah. you know, in any way. The first thing you'll usually hear back is, but these are guys, they're not challenging democracy. You know, they're not militarist guys. They haven't mm. got jackboots on the ground. And it's interesting that once that trend is then blobbing around in Latin America, that firewall doesn't hold. And they actually are quite happy to challenge democracy. And they are quite happy to put jackboots down on the ground. And that, if there is a dialectic there, if there's a conversation between those elements, that actually can be add further fuel to that fire. So if you're in the exhausted majority, please stop being exhausted and wake up. Regular listeners will remember the brilliant guests from Remain and Now, the campaign group of people who voted leave in the referendum but have changed their minds. If there's going to be another vote, they're going to be the ones who swing it. Remain and Now have been keeping up the pressure on politicians. Last week they took 15 former leave voters to Parliament to lobby MPs and even give some stern words to Michael Gove. I spoke to Andy from Remain and Now to find out what happened. How receptive were the MPs? What, what kind of feedback did you get from them? Because obviously, in a lot of ways, you guys are the kind of, you are the battleground. You are the people whose, whose minds are changing and are kind of representing the way the country's going. Yeah, ex- exactly. It was, um, well, to be honest, the, the guys we had in the room for two hours were all very receptive. So mm. there was there was four Labour MPs and, and as you said, Dominic Grieve from the Conservatives. Um, and the, the, the one thing they fed back is that just how much they valued the um, stories and the different reasons that all kind of 14 people had. They were all, all maybe voted leave for different reasons and had all been different triggers that changed their mind. And they actually said that, you know, these are, these are some of the most important people in helping get other MPs over to... Um, over to backing people's votes, um, and they they you know, they're going to help amplify. They're going to spread the stories around um, amongst their Labour and Conservative colleagues. But what we did manage to do was we actually went to the lobby after the um, meeting and had about an hour in the lobby where one of the ladies actually went over and cornered Michael Gove um, and called him over to the group to basically. Um, Tell, tell Mr Gove, really, what, what the uh, regretful leavers uh, thought of Brexit process and, and uh, how it's going. How did that go over with, uh, with the, the enthusiastic uh, Brexiteer, Mr Gove? He was actually quite civil. Um, uh, and he did seem to be listening, uh, but he was literally saved by the bell as, uh, as the bell went to um, call him to vote, uh, just as he told us that he thought another vote would uh, destroy faith in democracy, which, uh, given, given the, uh, the amount of faith that's been lost over the last two and a half years, was, um, was, gonna, was probably going to be met with some interesting replies. But, um, and what was the main takeaway? Are you feeling more optimistic about, about being able to turn this around? Yes, uh, very much so. Um, the the main feedback from, uh, you know, particularly from some some of the guys in the room, like Ben Bradshaw, was a people's vote is getting more and more likely. But what does need to happen is especially from Remainer Now, but from everyone, is the pressure really needs to get up from MPs and the Remainer Now voices really need to be amplified. So they need to be writing to their MPs, but anyone who knows a regretful leader, leaver 
needs to encourage them to write articles in their local newspaper um, and hopefully you know uh, your listeners can help help do that by you know following us on on Twitter on Facebook uh, go to www.remainernow.com pick up some of the stories and share them among their peer groups and and um, hopefully you know really get these voices out that the mood has changed As you've been hearing, our special guest this week is Gavin Esler, former Newsnight presenter, BBC Washington correspondent, author of novels and non-fiction, and prog rock fan. Gavin, your first book back in 1997 was called The United States of Anger. Do you ever look back and think, I didn't know why I had it so good? Yeah, well, actually, I, the reason I wrote that book was I travelled around 48 of the 50 states in the previous few years, and it was at the height of the Clinton boom. It was 98, I think it was published. And... What amazed me was every metric about the United States was going well. You know, the mm. unipolar world, uh, the uh, stock market was going through the roof, home ownership was going very high, uh, unemployment was very low. Why was it that so many Americans I met were angry, really, really angry? And essentially, it was summed up by a police officer in Annapolis, Maryland, who said to me, Bill Clinton says he's created 11 million new jobs. He has, and I've got four of them. Uh, He worked full-time as a police officer and he did three security jobs and his wife worked. And he said, my dad was a cop here in the 50s and 60s and we lived on his salary and we had a better life. And I didn't mention Trump in the book, sadly, but all the themes of that book, uh, cultural alienation, feeling America has been taken away from people. Uh, There was one chapter called Guns, God, Gays and Gynecology because it was all those issues that were motivating some people and are behind some of the the things that Donald Trump says. So I look back at it. I should say it went down very well in Europe and in Britain. We tried to get a US publisher. I can't quite tell you exactly what he said. It was basically, (laughs) oh, I can. He said... Who is this pansy ass Brit telling us our country is shit? Right. I put that on the dust jacket. Well, yeah. I, I took to be a no. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a pass then. It's a pass. Yeah, next time maybe. Do you think there's an element to which uh, that the the kind of driving anger that has defined our politics politics for probably longer than we'd like to admit? is now a self-sustaining thing, that it is actually a drug. It is something that people are addicted to. That's what they get into politics for, not for instrumental ends, but because the anger is energising. Yeah, and I think one of the things, I mean, we can talk talk all day about social media and how it's changed things and how angry it is and so on, but the anger was there before the social media. The social media is just a vector for it. It means that people Mm. can can, confront it. And in some ways, being angry is 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 a good thing. You know, if you're angry about your condition, if you're angry about the fact you haven't got a job, that can actually be a motivating factor. But our public life has become quite angry and kind of directionless. Uh, it, it's not to achieve something, it's to bring other people down. I think that's unfortunate. And I think, you know, I've, I've been in America for, covered many presidents, interviewed a few. Uh, they all at some point try to be uniters rather than dividers. Donald Trump doesn't even make the effort. He knows that dividing is the way he gets 37% approval rating, and that's possibly enough, actually, Mm. for him to do quite well. Yeah. Back to Brexit. I mean, you've written how, and you mentioned earlier, how you think a people's vote really is is possible. Um, How close do you think we are to getting one? Well, I think the, the, the biggest 
uh, card in the hand of all of us who would like a people's vote is the utter incompetence of the government and the people who most want to bring about Brexit, because we still don't know what it is. Uh, we, we still don't have a clue exactly what it is. So we're being helped by their incompetence. And I think uh, I travel a lot up and down the country. I was in Scotland fairly recently. I've been, been, been all over. Uh, and I think the mood is changing, whether it's changing enough. I mean, there still is this British feeling that, well, we've taken a decision. Let's get on with it. The trouble is we don't know what it is. And I think that is sinking through and I think there's more appetite for it. What we really need is some courage from mem- from members of Parliament because there are some members of Parliament who may vote for Theresa May's deal, whatever she gets, just because they feel they have to for party loyalty to bring this to an end. But I have to say, if Brexit goes through and is as bad as many of us think, then that will be hung round their necks forever uh, for the rest of their political career, which may not be very long. Mm. I mean, you spend a lot of time in Brussels. What what do they think is going to happen? Are they taking people's votes seriously? <laughs> yes, they are actually. Um, but well, uh, the conversations I had with MEPs and people and, and other people who, who who work in Brussels for the Commission and elsewhere broadly fell into the. Uh, we used to admire Britain. We now pity the British mm. Prime Minister. I don't think it's a good thing for our country to have a Prime Minister who's pitied. Uh, secondly, uh, one of them said to me. Um, the British keep coming here and asking us to help make Brexit happen, but they haven't yet told us what it is yet. <laughs> and the third thing, uh, I said to one of them, could we, d- could, could we get more time? Could we get more time? And he said, this was an MEP, he said, the question is more time for what? Mm. If it's more time for the past two years of messing around and having people who don't know what they're doing, no. If it's to revoke Article 50 or to get more time for even a transition, that is all possible. But they are saddened, actually, not just saddened to see people, but to see Britain go, but saddened at the way in which the incompetent way in which Britain has pursued things compared, for example, to Mrs. Thatcher who was always the smartest person in the room, at least the best informed person, who always interrogated her own officials to know exactly what uh, the French and the German position is and was never blindsided. And part of it is David Cameron pulled the Conservatives out of the European People's Party Mm. and he lacks that kind of intelligence, or the Conservatives lack that kind of intelligence that we get from Angela Merkel and other friendly right-of-centre groups. And... The British have been blindsided for several years now because of David Cameron's big mistake. Mm. I mean, it's often the narrative we get here is from the Brexit press is Europe is punishing us. Europe is looking to punish us. Uh, and everything is sort of you know, couched in terms of there's, you know, when imports and exports become uh, difficult in the event of no deal, then that's a European blockade. Oh, that's they, hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Do the people you speak to in Brussels really think in terms of... You know, the, uh, you, you know, know, punishment and reward for Britain. You, no, they, they they don't. But the the thing that is most striking is I've, I've been to in the last few months to Italy, Spain, Germany, France, the Low Countries, and Scandinavia. When you look at their newspapers, Brexit is not news. Hmm. It's a little bit somewhere. The idea that German, my, uh, my wife is born in Hamburg, you know, German family. The idea that the Germans are paying any attention whatsoever. Most Germans, 
they would like Britain to stay, but they don't really care. It's not going to affect them that much. They're not that bothered. And they'll sell their cars to somebody. And so when, when you read the German paper, for example, the top stories will be Merkel going, relations with Macron in France, relations with Turkey. Uh, we're a bit scared of Russia. What do we do about that? And isn't Trump a bit weird? Mm. And Britain really doesn't play much there or in France or in Italy or in Spain. So Brexit is somewhere underneath the crossword on page <laughs> 60. Just, just fine. We touched on the, on the BBC the stuff a little. The cryptic one. The cryptic one, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we touched uh, earlier in the show on, on uh, you, know, you at the BBC. Do you think the BBC, uh, now, that you could, now that you're out and you can speak for yourself, has the BBC had a good Brexit? I think the BBC is a great institution and it's always going to get it in the neck from, from somebody. I do think that this is uh, has been a very difficult moment for them and they, they've done some things very well and some local programmes have done things very well but their attitude to balance and expertise has not been done as well as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I ask something? Um, because sometimes I sense and you can either confirm or deny or not comment on this but my sense sometimes is that actually the BBC is largely staffed by cosmopolitan elite liberals which causes them to wildly overcompensate whenever they're dealing with a subject that they feel they will naturally be biased Hmm. on. That's my sense. So everything that they consider the answer to it to be da, they tend to bring an overload of all these... Sort of extreme wackos. Here's Tommy Robinson. Yes, yeah. because they feel they can't put the point across as a journalist, so they need Peter Bone there to do it. Well, I think uh, there may be something like that, but uh, something in that. But look, the idea that Peter Bone will put the non-elitist point of view <laughs> is <laughs> no, possibly. I know. What, I know exactly. I know exactly what you're saying. But, but uh, it seems to me that. The, the, the key thing is that the Rethian vision for the BBC, as you, as you know, was to educate, inform and entertain. Now, the bodyguard was great. The entertainment, big tick, as far as mm. I'm concerned. But how educated and how informed are the British people and have the British... And it's not just the BBC, but how educated and how informed are the British people about what Brexit really means, about uh, what trade deals really mean? I don't expect... or everybody in the country to actually know how to negotiate a trade deal but it would be quite useful for them to know it's not easy (laughs) and uh, I think there's been a failure of journalism in general in the education and information business Mm. and that's why we need podcasts it is Now, it's a major week in literary London as the latest of the massively successful grown-up Ladybird books is out. And yes, it's the story of Brexit. You know the score by now. Beautiful old illustrations from Ladybird books repurposed for our less innocent times. The writers, friends of Romaniacs Joel Morris and Jason Hazley, are here to tell us about it. And we've got ten copies to give away. Find out how you could get yours after we talk to Jason and Joel. Hello, Jason and Joel. How are you? Hi. Good, yeah. By the way, thank you for doing those lovely Brexit banners for us, those slogans. They were a smash it and they were everywhere on the march. How exciting. 
exciting. Yeah. They were a mega smash hit. And uh, although Don't Worry They'll All Be Dead Soon was a bit controversial. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I sometimes think I should spend more than 30 seconds responding to a demand for <laughs> can you think of loads of slogans? Well, th- then you'd make less books. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah it, it came from the gut, that one. It came from the gut, and yes, and, and it hit the gut as well. Now, you guys have mentioned in the past that you kind of shied away from doing Brexit in the, in the Lady Bird series. Why was that, and why do it now? Uh, well, look... The reason this book came about, and this is partly your fault, um, is that we once the when the books took off at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, we got invited to lots of literary festivals, and we ended up doing a talk for about 50 minutes, and then doing 10 minutes of Q and A. And the question that we were asked, I think, at every one, practically every one of the festivals, was, "Are you going to do Brexit?" <laughs> and we said no, and our basic reasoning was because it's a divisive issue. Then. We were then we heard some horror stories about people walking out of Marcus Brigstock said he did some uh, Remainy material in a, in a stand-up routine and people walked out um, and we realized then okay that's the thing it's toxic it's toxic to a comedy voice to do this but then we spoke to your friend and ours Al Murray who said no I've cr- I've cracked it because we said to him how's the pub landlord going to deal with something like this because it's pretty obvious which side he's going to be on and obviously also Al had stood against Nigel Farage yeah mm, so yeah. basically the, 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 the performer was clearly on one side and the character was clearly on another so how do you do a show to a, a, a divided crowd with yeah. that and Al said uh, no I've cracked it the pub landlord goes out there and says, I'll tell you whose fault this is, the politicians. That's who it is, that's who's got us into this mess. And it unites the audience. And we then suddenly thought, oh, there might be a way into this material. There may be a way in. And obviously we, don't want to, we didn't want to write a partisan book, whatever our views, um, because if we wanted to write a partisan book, we could have written how it works the lever, how it works the remainder, and made twice as much fucking money. <laughs> we didn't want to do that. Why we, thought, we, want to, we want to write a book, actually, which sits along that divide, because it's harder. Mm. That's a tougher place for us and to Right. Only one of the two would be fiction. Yeah, <laughs> filed in different parts of the bookshop. The other thing we found out as well, which we, we stumbled upon by accident, we kept saying, "How could we do it?" It didn't feel very funny. And the last thing you want to do is, is do a material to a room that you've judged badly. Your job as a comedian is to judge the room. Mm. And the problem with Brexit is you're always misjudging the room because you don't know who you're talking to, and they have very partisan, very tribal views. And you sort of say, someone can say black is white back at your routine, whatever you say. So it's very hard to get the jokes to land. And then when we were doing uh, a book that's coming out for Christmas, which was a coffee table book called The Wonderful World of Ladybird Books for Grown Ups. We had to make up loads of new ladybirds we'd not published and, and, and illustrate them. We started illustrating uh, the story of Brexit simply because I'd found the, the picture that's on the cover of a, of a customs point in the Swiss Alps. Yeah, the Fox, <laughs> an orange Volkswagen Beetle is being told, show us your papers. Yeah, yeah, and that made me laugh. So I mocked the cover up and that made me laugh. And I thought, I wonder if we could do some, some spreads from inside. And started to do them and then realised there was a, a joke that we hadn't spotted, which is that the the beautiful illustrations in the Ladybird archive, which are of a kind of idealised, simple Britain, yeah. were the same illustrations that are inside Jacob Rees-Mogg's head. <laughs> that basically the sunlit uplands that they're thinking of were basically their childhoods. They're illustrated in Ladybird books. So weirdly, the illustrations match perfectly a vision of the Britain to come in the lever mind. And actually, it works really well, I think, as a as a sort of an overall critique of saying, what, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think you're going to go back in time? It's kind of, it felt like quite a solid joke. Well, you could pop it back through a time wormhole and it would be a manifesto in 2016, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's odd. We, we quite liked the, there's a, if you're going to do something that's a polemic, it's not going to be very funny. But one of the things they do really well on things like The Daily Show, uh, Colbert, things like that, is to take the point of view of someone saying something ludicrous and then just deliver it completely straight. It's, it's whatever, it's a modest proposal. Yeah. You do a gag that you say, what if this actually happened? 
what if all the 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 the, the ballyhoo was true? And then through that, by illustrating it, and luckily we have access to the world's biggest uh, collection of a jigsaw puzzle style visions of beautiful Britain yeah. by uh, perforce of being doing these audiobook books. But I think that's part of the subtext of these books and part of the the success of them is that as well as being funny, there is just a great nostalgia and a great sort of warmth for the things you loved when you were a kid and the vision of the world that you were shown as a kid. It's going to be like this. Well, it's going to be nice. This is, Smiling th- policemen. This is our, playing bat and ball. Our essential joke, I think, that, that makes the things work is that the pictures show you how simple and colourful and beautiful you thought the world was going to be. And the text is supposed to say, you know what, it's more complicated than that. And I don't think there's been an issue in British history more that represents that than the Brexit referendum. A simple yes-no choice to which you have had a podcast now running for years saying, it's really complicated. <laughs> That's the, is the ladybird bookish thing that could happen. Is the picture says to your heart, what a wonderful country this could be. If only, how hard can it be to give all that money to the NHS? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the facing page says, it's really, really complicated. Ian, tariff quotas, go. That's what I waited You for. weren't here earlier, we already did. <laughs> <laughs> did Do the hits. I hate it when someone does the hit early in the set. Yeah, absolutely. It's the encore, we know this. Yeah. Um, was, there a, was there a particular image that, that, I mean, you mentioned the cover and the, and the beat like the checkpoint, were there other, other images that you hit upon and went, that is, that's a holy grail, that one? I don't think so. I think it was the cover that actually sold yeah. it because once you'd found that, and then yeah. and then and then we mocked up the cover and we went, "Oh yeah, okay." Uh, odd thing is, actually, we showed we showed a few pages to a, a mate of ours who said, "You know, you should write this book, don't you?" And we said, "No, no, 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 no. It's too dangerous. It's too difficult." Um, but that was when actually then all those 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 pages that we showed and we subsequently swapped out and put other things in because we were trying to. We're, once you've you committed to doing gag. a book, you're trying to actually make it as good as you possibly can, not a, just mm. oh, first draft will do, you know. Well, I think there's, 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 obviously we were looking for pictures of beautiful village greens and things like that to sort of say this is what it is. There's a great picture. One of the pictures which looks like it's Britain, like a beautiful vision of pastoral Britain, uh, looking over a church. I like the. There's a very subtle joke in there. It's a picture of Britain shortly after the land enclosures, and if you look closely, <laughs> it's clearly like the 15th century or yeah. something. But it's that idea of saying this that front cover of the Sun they did that had the the Photoshop mock up oh, of the Cold War Steve uh, vision of the future. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. Is you're talking about oh, what Sarah Dempster calls those jigsaw puzzles of uh, jigsaw puzzle art of like a spitfire buzzing a family picnicking by a Morris Oxford and it's this sort of vision and weirdly it's the same art that was used in the Second World War to sort of to inspire troops to say this is what you're fighting for and I think as a very fervent Remainer looking at this artwork made me go yeah I'd fall for that because I think that one of the things that, that Remain, the, Remain hasn't argued well enough is it hasn't appealed to the heart. And mm. these books are a direct thing of saying, this is the country you want, and yeah. they're stopping you having it. And you go, that's very, very powerful rhetoric. It works in a visual language. Very simple, very direct. But how does the complicated reality penetrate that? It's, I impo- mean, it's very hard. Well, I think that's you what know, we're what's finding. the Roger Rabbit moment yeah. <laughs> where the character bursts out of yeah. the screen suddenly swearing with a cigar and you think, oh, they're not cute and cuddly. No, it's, it's the hardest thing. They're actual thing. fascists. The, 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 hard, the hardest thing is because the, they're, they're draped in this, which of course is, God almighty, anyone who's seen colour footage of marches that, that were organised by the Nazis of all the Mitch and in their lederhosen and thinking, this is the equivalent of, of a Morris dancing festival. This is your national <laughs> heritage is the first thing that Morris fascists Morris dancers use. are not Nazis, Joel. They come, come on, I don't think he was saying <laughs> the same. I don't know. Only I don't some know. of them are. Uh, no, but it's, it's a, it's a Songs, really, uniforms, no, it's hashtag a very, not all it's, Morris it's, it's a very easy thing. So you can see that the, 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 a lot of the 
persuasive non-arguments for mm. leaving were to do with just pushing buttons of simple nationalism, simple nostalgia, and and simple simplicity. And I think the, the funny thing we've stumbled upon, because we had this archive to play with for one last time, was to go, wow, this wellspring of nostalgia is one of the reasons we're here. Yeah. Mm. Does it give you a warm feeling that this is going to be the, the, the pass-ag Christmas present to loads of Brexit <laughs> Uncle Ken, you know, is going to get well, this. I, th- uh, I think uh, everyone can laugh Brexit. at it, can't they? I mean, the, the other thing as well is we, we, wanted to, we couldn't have done a Brexit book in 2016 which is when everyone started asking, because no one was as fed up with it then. You guys were, but most of the country was going, yeah, now everyone's fed up with it. And the, one of the ways these books work as well is they appeal to middle-aged ennui. And if you're fed up with your husband being in the shed or your midlife crisis, they do subjects that you're fed up with. And everyone's fed up with Brexit, whatever side they're on. Um, I just checked. It's number one Amazon bestseller in grandparents. Really? No. Know your crowd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For their grandparents. Can I? Can I tell you? Um, the very last change we made to it Go was it, well, we have a thing where we don't want you to be able to move for, for gags in these books so we put gags everywhere we can put them and one of the ones that we've done consistently is on the title page we've put our names with silly initials after them and then authors of and then we put a silly book in mm. there and this one says authors of cheese and onion or salt and vinegar a nation divided <laughs> and that that was that was a good change by you Joel at the last minute because what we had in there was one that very much wasn't sitting on the divide that said that this was that we were authors of volunteering for chemotherapy <laughs> and if you thought the uh, they'll be dead in a minute placard yeah. went down badly can you imagine how that would have, have you noticed what, have you noticed what colour it is because all the previous we got a, a, a phone call from our, our, our publisher our editor said are you sure about this colour because all the previous ones were lovely uh, building block uh, primary colours red, mm. yellow, green and blue and this one is, is a sort of slightly dirty uh, browny pink colour and he said why have you chosen this colour I went it's the colour of elastoplast it's supposed uh, to make yeah. you feel a wow. bit ill <laughs> I'm sure I've got an album called The Colour of Elastoplast somewhere um, of course David Davis and Liam Fox are going to each get about 30 copies for Christmas. Is oh, this, that, that makes it feel all worthwhile. Is this going to the way to turn around our economy, an entirely Ladybird book-based self-producing economy, an Ouroboros of... Uh, they're, also qu- they're quite good if you want to pile them up and to defend your inner core or refuge where you're keeping all your tins. You could put lots of those there. I mean, you can probably exchange them for rat meat. Well, in quite, 2020. quite hard. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. build armour. Yeah, yeah. For, as long know. as John McDonald doesn't take it out and flick it to him. <laughs> there you go. The sharp corners. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, we have ten copies of the story of Brexit to give away, and here's how you can get one. Uh, there's a classic Ladybird painting on our Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon pages. One that's not in the book. Just tweet or write your Brexity caption, and the, mm. ten, the ten best ones chosen by us in conjunction with Joel and Jason will get the book. So there you go, Jason and Joel, our listeners of the cheap foreign labour that's going to put you out of a job. We're them. They are the Polish plumbers of comedy. Thank you so much for coming in. The, you're not the Polish plumbers of comedy. Our listeners are the Polish. Plumbers. So thank you very much. Thank uh, you. I'd, I'd say best of luck, but you don't need it because these things are flying out the shops, aren't they? Oh, Hooray! <laughs> the end of the show is approaching like the Brexit deadline itself, which means it's time to decide what's going into the Brexit time capsule. Gavin, as our special guest, you get to choose something that we'll miss if we leave the EU. Something that we'll miss uh, if we leave the EU. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm going to speak on behalf of my wife, who's a musician who travels all around Europe, like a lot of musicians, and they just get on a plane or get on a train and a boat and they go. I will miss that. 
she will miss that because if she has to go and get a work permit for every bit of her musical tours, it will drive her and therefore, by <laughs> extension, me up the wall. So you're, are we putting your marriage into, <laughs> into the My marriage should stay in the time capsule. It's lovely. It's wonderful. <laughs> and I want to keep it. Gavin, so Brexit or no Brexit. Brexit or no Brexit. Gavin, no, you've got a rush. Thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been great having you on. It's been a pleasure. Thank right. you. And now it's time for a non-English clip to see us off. This week, it's a bit of Finnish from Petri Simonen. Kiitokset kaikille People's Vote Marossi osallistuneille. Tämä Brexit-prosessi on ollut aika synkkä katseltavaa, mutta tässä ei ole melkein uskaltaa toivoa paremmasta. Ottakaa yhteyttä niihin kansanedustajien, niin saattaa asiat jopa muuttua. Ja muistakaa, eteenpäin sinun mummolumessa. That means, thank you to everyone who took part in the People's Vote March. It's been a bleak experience to see the Brexit process unfold, but one can almost hope for a better future. Contact your MPs and things might even change. And remember, onward, as Grandma said in a snowbank. I feel like these are getting less snappy. They are, but that was was pretty good Finnish proverb there. So, yes, we could use more European language clips. So if you're fluent, record something on your phone, keep it clean and keep it tight and short. Send it to us within a translation to info at remainx.com and we'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Thank you to our special guest, Gavin Esler, who's had to run. Thanks to Joel and Jason, who were on earlier. And thanks to Alex and Ian. Don't forget those tickets for Romaniacs Live on Monday, the 10th of December in London. Tickets are on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. We will see you next time. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a huge mille grazie to our latest Patreon backers. And thanks from me to Helen Hanna, Ben Axtell, Luigi Piccolo, Philippa Farrow, Alan Boydell, Ben Clay, H. Kembury, Daniel Crush, Benedict James, and Robert Jessup. And hello from me to Beth Black, Robert Andaru, Mark Nolan, Cam Edwards, and Bernard Collier. Finally, thanks from me to Robert Morgan, Jen Barrow, Jeremy Greening, Tom Gately, and Luke Syred. Many thanks, and we'll see you next week. Remainiacs was presented by Andrew Harrison with Ian Dunt and me, Alexandreu. Audio production was by Sophie Black. Remainiacs is a Podmasters production.